Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you news from across the front lines, update on Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to the US ahead of a historic day on the US Capitol, and we hear moving stories and reflections from a journalist who spends his time reporting from the front lines in the Russo-Ukrainian war. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 12th of December. One year and 291 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is Guillaume Petac, a French freelance journalist and correspondent for daily newspapers Les Echos and La Libre Belgique. Just a quick note from me. We recorded this podcast ahead of Zelensky's crucial day in Washington, and while the significance and the impact of the network outage in Ukraine was still emerging... We will, of course, return to both of these stories in more detail tomorrow. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So difficult to get news out of Ukraine, as always. But we think Russia has been continuing its offensive operations. We think they have been pushing particularly around the northeast, Kupiansk, Savatave, Kremina area, then down further bit down to the southeast, Bakhmut, then Avdivka and to the west and southwest of Donetsk City, as well as continuing to attempt to force back Ukrainian forces in the west of Zaporizhia Oblast, where they had the most success in the in their counteroffensive. We think this is, well, in the east, it's been described as the, around Avdivka certainly, the third wave, third assault wave. But we think this is a push to try and achieve something by the end of the year and to claim territory in those the four oblasts that Russia's or Putin's suddenly decided is part of Russia ahead of the presidential election next year. So they are really pushing hard with limited success or very muted response and at high costs. Now, Ukrainian military officials have said that Russia is, uh, they have recently intensified mechanised offensive operations around Avdivka. There had been a Well, we thought this, what's been described as this third wave, had paused the use of mechanised units. 
units in in specially designed vehicles. So not battle taxis, not to get troops to the front line where they, they dismount and then go into the fight, but mechanised units, sometimes called infantry fighting vehicles, um, are designed to be in the fight as well. So to take small arms fire, limited artillery fire, wouldn't take anything like a direct hit by an artillery shell, certainly nothing within kind of 10 metres, but would put up with shell splinters, that kind of thing as opposed to armoured personnel carriers, which I, I you know, disparagingly describe as battle taxis there. So we think possibly Russia has gone back to using mechanised forces around Avdivka, and we will try, try and, get, try and make, get some ground truth to get some sense of that for you. Now, separately, today's uh, British MOD statement is talking about Russia's ability to fight at night. Uh, in the latest intelligence briefing, they're saying that night vision goggles have frequently featured high in the lists of equipment Russian units have requested from their families and supporters. The uh, Defence Intelligence Department of Britain's MOD continues, says, there is also likely a cultural element to Russia's problem. Russian military training has rarely emphasised night exercises, instead typically building towards set-piece daylight events to impress visiting senior officers. Now, we have seen that earlier in the war, that they've not been... Or they've been quite reluctant to operate at night. I think Ukraine, to a certain degree, the same, although they have, they have had more night vision equipment, both personnel or, or personal to the fighter and also for vehicles and aircraft and what have you. Of course, just being able to see at night, it, it is then, it's a very different beast. As in, if you, if you exercise and you train and you're competent fighting during the day, it doesn't. It's not the same. It's not saying, well, we're at night, but we've got night vision goggles, so we can do it exactly the same. It's a whole, a whole new event, basically. That, that we've, there's yet to be fully wrap around, fully immersed sort of night vision devices for soldiers. So you lose a lot of your peripheral vision. You're basically looking down through two toilet tubes, if you like, of very greeny, glary, grainy light. And it's difficult to coordinate assaults. So everything slows down at night, basically. But we think Ukraine have had slightly had the upper hand in terms of provision of equipment. Whether or not they've been able to actually utilise it is another matter. I labour the point because just in the last few weeks, we've seen a, a development whereby the recent drones, what's called the FPV drones, first-person view drones, which are are individually piloted by somebody into a target. So rather than just a drone going up and in a sort of parabolic curve, or even if it's under its own power, choosing a target on its way down, first-person view drones are those that can loiter, can come back, can attack or not attack or, or what have you, and can be driven around the battlefield into targets as, the, as the, the pilot, if you like, as they see fit. So in recent weeks, Russia seemed to have developed the ability to put thermal images on those drones and to, so to be able to use the those air, aircraft to much greater effect at night than they had been able to before you know, there's, there's thousands of drones in the sky every day over ukraine but russia now seems to be doing it to some degree in the east particularly around Avdivka at night and that i've seen various reports in in the last few weeks about how the logistic resupply of ukrainian forces into areas particularly Avdivka is under very, very heavy pressure from these first-person view drones that are fitted with thermal cameras. So there's been a big push through the volunteer community for people to donate money and, and kit to try and counter the, these uh, these drones in particular, i.e. by building up Ukraine's ability to fly FPV drones at night and just thermal kit in general. But I labour that point because I'm, I feel we are going to uh, talk about it many, many more times. 
Okay, moving on. Now, yesterday, you remember I talked about the two MCMV, the mine countermeasures vessels, basically mine hunters, that that Britain has said it's going to gift to Ukraine. This is all part of the new maritime capability coalition that was launched yesterday, Britain and Norway teaming up with the Ukrainian Navy. I made the point that, you know, that's good. But the, these two MCMV vessels are not going to get there. These two mine hunters are not going to be allowed into the Black Sea until after this war finishes. I'll talk about why in a moment. But um, just whilst we're on it, there's, there is more to, to say. But thanks to Bob for reminding me that we were talking about the hulls, the mine hunter hulls. They are in the Royal Naval Service. They are glass reinforced plastic. And most other navies, including the US Navy, have, have wood. Bob reminded me, of course, that they are that wood and glass reinforced plastic, fiberglass basically, is used so they don't detonate magnetic mines. So some sea mines, maritime mines, either sit on the surface or can be on the on the seabed, or some some are tethered. But if they're magnetic, they can be. Some can be designed to then go for the the, the big metal thing that floats nearby, which is going to be a ship. So you know, a magnetic mine will then will head towards the hull of any passing ship. They won't be attracted by wood and glass reinforced plastic. Contact mines, obviously, a completely different thing. Contact mines where you explode when you there's physical contact between the vessel and the mine of course that doesn't matter what what your hull's made out of but um the glass reinforced plastic on royal navy ships or royal navy mine hunters i should say is the fiberglass that we would recognize from pleasure boats or those huge pelican pedalos which are the critical components of the f-bombs courtship rituals but fiberglass can be harder than wood so you don't have to worry about things like wood rot and uh, as like, like wood as i said it's not magnetic just on this subject you do get sub-hunting aircraft like the USP-3 Orion. They have probes in the tail that are used to detect, well, they magne- magnetic anomaly detection, so known as MAD, brilliantly known as MAD in military circles. So they come out the back of the aircraft. They're looking for, right, hang on with me at the back seats. Yeah, we're getting technical now. They're looking for the wobble in the magnetic field caused by a submerged submarine. So these probes that have magnetic anomaly detection can pick that up. And therefore, the aircraft then can drop a torpedo and so on and so forth. So that's a quick a quick dit on um, on mine countermeasure vessels and all things subsurface. But also in the in the announcement yesterday, or it was in, came out yesterday afternoon, as well as those two ships, Britain's going to donate twenty Viking amphibious vehicles and twenty three raiding craft. They're particularly good for inland water waterways along the Dnipro River, for example. Not so good on the open sea. Uh, now, last night. President Zelensky in the US, he said of this new coalition, he said, together we will strengthen the Ukrainian Navy, safeguard maritime transportation routes and secure freedom of navigation. Grant Shapps, Britain's Defence Secretary, added, this capability boost marks the beginning of a new dedicated effort by the UK, Norway and our allies to strengthen Ukraine's maritime capabilities over the long term. So Vikings, as I say, they're armoured, amphibious, they, they can swim. Uh, all-terrain vehicles operate on tracks, so they can go lots of lots of different places. Originally designed for Britain's Royal Marines, deployed on land in Iraq and Afghanistan, also in service with the uh, Austrian, Dutch, French and Swedish armies. The Netherlands donated 28 Vikings to Ukraine earlier this year. Now, the point I was making about getting these mine hunters into the Black Sea, unlike capital ships, capital term is there's no strict definition but capital is taken to mean a big warship which includes these two the two mine hunters the raiding craft i've just described the 23 raiding craft britain is donating the raiding craft are not covered by the montreux convention the montreux convention regulates maritime traffic through the turkish straits 
in times of peace and war, regulated by by Turkey. But basically, in war, ships of the of the warring parties cannot pass into the Black Sea. So those mine hunters won't be able to get there. The raiding craft will, possibly because they can go in overland. Obviously, there's only quite small ribs, the rigid inflatable boat, that type of thing, rigid hulls. So they should be able to be operated, and they'll be used for exactly the kind of operations that we're seeing down on the left bank of the Dnipro at the moment. And I'll pause for breath there, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for your deep dive there. Francis, it's a big day in politics and diplomacy. Talk us through it. Thanks, David. Yes, it's crunch time. Zelensky is visiting the United States today in a last-ditch plea to save the multi-billion dollar aid package being blocked by Congress. He's meeting Republican House leader Mike Johnson and Senate leader Mitch McConnell in Washington as he bids to persuade their party to back... $61 billion in new military aid proposed by President Biden. That package held up in Congress by Republicans who want to see greater funding for security along the border with Mexico. Zelensky, we understand, will address senators at 2 p.m. GMT, that's about 9 a.m. ET, and hold a joint press conference with Mr. Biden at 9.15 p.m. GMT, that's about 4.15 p.m. ET. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby has said that the White House would provide Ukraine with additional security assistance by the end of the year with or without Congress's support. But just how much they can provide remains an open question if Congress chose to decline this bill. Now, speaking at Washington's National Defence University yesterday, Zelensky said in an address that when the free world hesitates, that's when dictatorships celebrate. Two voices have eloquently echoed this view, making points I've not seen expressed so concisely in writing elsewhere. The first is Dara Massacott, senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She's written on X, and I quote, The Kremlin is starting to gloat that it is beating the West. If they feel they can win by outlasting the political will of the US and Europe about Ukraine, they will become much worse in the years to come, cocky and partially reconstituted. Bruised, vengeful and overconfident, Russia is one of them that I can see on the path we are on, unless choices are made now. Every time the Russians think that they have won in a conflict under Putin, Georgia 2008, Ukraine 2014, Syria 2015, they learn something about us and they become overconfident in their abilities and in a few years they try bigger and bolder operations. If the Kremlin concludes they can outlast Ukraine and Western support, they will tell themselves they overcame or defeated US and NATO intelligence, planning, weapons, tactics, will and defence production. It would be an inaccurate but dangerous conclusion for them to arrive at. It could upend deterrence. Now, likewise, Tamafi Milovinov, the former Minister of Economical Development and Trade in Ukraine, who we interviewed on the podcast a few months ago, wrote... The West has a blind spot and needs to realise Russia's transformation. It's no longer just a nation with unlimited numbers of bodies for cannon fodder. It's now adept with advanced drones from Shahids to Lancets and AI-driven tech for warfare. I hope Zelensky, during his visit to the US, will be able to explain this to the Washington establishment. The world must see beyond just supporting Ukraine. If Russia isn't quickly checked, it will go stronger, gaining an unprecedented bargaining edge over NATO. If Russia's technological development persists, future talks won't just be about Ukraine's borders, but about limiting NATO's presence in Eastern Europe. 
politicians in the West and perhaps some commanders do not appreciate the newly emerging technological capabilities of Russia. This may be a serious, if not fatal, mistake. The war in Ukraine should be understood in its broader significance and become a priority for NATO. Now, for many, the West's early reluctance to back Ukraine to the hilt and the difficulties around the counteroffensive bought Russia time to regroup and mobilise its resources. What could have been a short war now looks set to last much longer, which demands a high level of mobilisation and support from Western countries, something they thus far seem reluctant to commit to in both the US and within Europe for different reasons. I find the US hesitancy especially curious, often rooted in this idea that funding for Ukraine is being blindly sent to Kyiv, when in fact the US aid to Ukraine only amounts to around 5.6% of the defence budget, with almost 90% of that money being spent in the US, in 31 states across 117 production lines. Misinformation, though, is rife, most recently being pumped out by Tucker Carlson, speculated as being one of the favoured choices to be Trump's VP nominee, and Elon Musk via his platform X. Now, by this time tomorrow, we will know the outcome of Zelensky's Washington meetings and whether there has been progress. As the podcast covered yesterday, he's also reaching out to other nations. Argentina's new president is a significant new vocal vocal supporter of Ukraine, but Zelensky was rebuffed by Brazil's president at the former's inauguration, according to the O Globo newspaper there, despite Zelensky requesting a meeting. It will be interesting monitoring the fallout, too, between Israel and Russia and whether that affords opportunities. We know there are tensions between Netanyahu and Putin following the latter's support of Iran and dealing with the Hamas representatives. Russian Foreign Ministry has said that Moscow and Tehran are close to signing a major new interstate agreement, though the details of that are scarce. Now, before I end, I don't want to give the impression that support for Kyiv has ceased and is wholly reliant on this bill in Congress. The International Monetary Fund has just approved a new $900 million aid package, and it'll be interesting to see what the impact of that is on relations in Europe and also given the context of the strained relations between Poland and Ukraine now that Donald Tusk has been elected as Poland's new prime minister. A Polish-Ukrainian border crossing which reopened to some lorries on Mondays has closed again thanks to protesters in the country. But Tusk has said that Poland's new government will attempt to end these protests as quickly as possible. As we've said many times, there is more that unifies Poland and Ukraine on the issue of Russia and its threat than divides them. But it just seems that on this economic matter that there has been certainly a uh, splinter in what has otherwise been a vital relationship. Furthermore, the EU itself will propose sending Ukraine $16.2 billion in profits generated by frozen Russian assets. That's what the Financial Times is reporting today. Listeners will recall that the West has frozen more than $200 billion in Russian assets since the war in Ukraine began. Though the hesitancy about unlocking those and giving the money to Ukraine has been around what Russia will do in response, namely about seizing Western assets. But I would posit that if Russia deemed it necessary to do that, they would do it regardless of what the Western policy is or isn't on those assets. But anyway, David, that's where we are on a significant day. And I think in the next few hours, there will be much developments for us to monitor. 
Well, thank you very much, Francis. Just on those on that Polish-Ukrainian border crossing, I looked it up, and Dom, I think it's the one where we tried to cross, and they told us to get lost because it was just for lorries, and we had to drive sort of 70, 100 miles south. But uh, happy memories of trying to cross the Ukrainian border in summer 2022 then. Joe Barnes, let's go to you. It's not just a huge day in Washington. It's a huge week in, in, in Europe as well. And you've been speaking to some sources. What are they telling you? Yeah, so massive week. And as I've alluded to, Ukraine is heading for possibly what is going to be a double blow at the EU Council this week. So Thursday and Friday, European leaders of the EU27 are meeting to discuss, first of all, can Ukraine be handed a session talks to join the EU? But also then on the other hand, there is this 50 billion euro package of financial help for Ukraine. And both of them seem to be basically heading towards the uh, the chopping block for now under the veto of Hungary's Viktor Orban. But so what I've been looking at is Britain started off being Ukraine's most ardent backer in Europe, but slowly that has waned as the likes of the Ursula von der Leyen of the European Commission, of Olaf Scholz in Germany have taken over. But actually now I've been speaking to a small but growing group of sort of European capitals, and they've said that European leaders are now urging Rishi Sunak to basically channel his inner Winston Churchill and reclaim Britain's role in leading Western support for Ukraine. So basically, UK, the UK's European allies want Britain to step up as Germany, France and the US struggle to maintain their backing for Kyiv for various reasons. So one one source told me, look, it's clear there is no Churchill figure in the Tory ranks right now. And without it, the rest of Europe seems to have forgotten what's at stake. So basically, it just fears that there's no one no one has taken the reins and really looked to inject new momentum as things have been stalling and sputtering and stuff. So what's quite interesting is, look, you've got the US issue, you've got this European issue, but no one is seemingly giving, putting the emphasis on Europe to do more. So look, Germany's announcing loads, doing stuff itself, but there's not one cons- big effort, big drive amongst them to do that. So I was actually in a briefing with Ola Steneschneier, who's Ukraine's Deputy Prime Minister for European Integration yesterday. Uh, she spoke to a small group of journalists in Brussels. And she said, look, now we're actually at a stage where the promises of Western countries to stand with Ukraine as long as it's as long as it takes, that well-known mantra is being tested 100 percent now. That is, you've got the ideas of Germany's warned it cannot afford to give Brussels extra cash because of domestic budget constraints. You've got Hungary, which is vetoing the EU membership talks, as well as this sort of 50 billion in fees. So this is what this one diplomat told me. The fear is that if Berlin doesn't get out of this sadomasochistic budget whipping exercise, and if Macron's preference for is for big speeches over big support, we accept Kiev and Europe lose this war. Now, Schultz and Macron are preoccupied by their own travails. Sunak should take the lead and bring them together to inject new momentum. It can't go on like this. And basically, they're looking back to the role that Boris Johnson played. Look, he's much maligned in Europe, but I'm sure one thing that everyone agrees on is what a bloody good job he did sort of convincing Europeans and NATO and the EU to actually get behind Ukraine and really get those weapons sent over, get basically get help to Ukraine. But then as I like sort of I wrote this, I was looking through the figures of what has been donated to Ukraine most recently. And there has been 
So figures released last week by the Kiel Institute for the World Economy, a German think tank which tracks USA, oh, U, uh, global aid, sorry, to Ukraine, said commitments had reached a new low between August and October of this year. So global promises of just 2.11 billion euros of support were offered to Kiev during that period. That is a 90% decrease compared to the same period last year. Um, so yet, look, Britain has pledged to send these amphibious landing vehicles to the Ukrainian army and also a day after the mine hunting ships look great news. But yeah, that is that enough as it comes? So look, as I said, like Boris Johnson was credited for spearheading that initial response to the Russian invasion. But now, rather than Sunak being seen as potentially the guy to go to, to whip up and build up sort of more support and momentum for Ukraine in Kyiv, actually, they see David Cameron as more of that person to sort of publicly champion Europe's long-term support, while Sunak takes a more strategic backseat role. And this is what uh, Stenner Shire told me yesterday. Look, you've got a pretty charismatic Minister of Foreign Affairs, but the Prime Minister is really expected to to be strategic to ensure the principles of as long as it takes are enshrined into multi-year support. So yeah, it's it's just interesting to see how Europe as things are getting tough, there's no denying about that. You've got the budgetary issues, you've got the wrangling America, you've got battlefield problems for Ukraine. Europe seems a bit rudderless and people are already going into Downing Street and say Mark Rutter, the Dutch Prime Minister, is there. I'm sure there's been lots more European outreach to Rishi Sunak as well. And just basically saying, look, can you help us steer this ship when it's most needed? Joe, I just wanted to ask you something briefly before we bring in our guest. We obviously spoke at length a few weeks ago about the role of Hungary and this potential veto. And the speculation was at the time, I remember we discussed it, that they would permit the talks to begin, the accession talks for Ukraine joining the European Union. But they might get some kind of bargaining in order to enable that, slash they may well delay it later on in the process. But the thought was they would greenline it now. What has changed and why do you think that has changed? Is it the geopolitical context of the moment? or is there something else going on? There's a few ways and th- ways to think about this. So one thing, is it a way for Hungary to basically unlock lots of blocked funds that it has been promised out of the EU budget but are being restricted because of issues over rule of law and perceived anti-democratic values in Hungary? That's one way of looking at it. Is Viktor Orban basically taking this right down to the crunch point to extol and get as many concessions out of European, the European Union as possible? Potentially. The other one is he has been quite open in saying that Ukraine is the most corrupt country in the world and he doesn't basically want Ukraine joining the EU because it would be a blight on the bloc's farmers, on the bloc's taxpayers. I really don't know. For, for once, I speak to people and they think Orban isn't bluffing, but I was in with Ukraine's deputy prime minister yesterday and she was saying, actually, you know what? We think there is room to do a sort of a financial deal. And the commission today, the European Commission, is set to unlock 10 billion in funds to Hungary in what is seen as a last gasp effort to get that over the line. I've just been writing for the website and the paper now that there are a few sort of secondary ideas going on in terms of getting this so 50 billion euros on the table for Ukraine. That could suddenly move from being an EU thing to an intergovernmental thing. So you could suddenly find the 26 minus Hungary are looking at how can we get money to Ukraine. There is talk of putting back talk of Ukraine's official accession talks till March, maybe holding another summit in January to try and unblock this. But yeah, there's basically the wheels of diplomacy are whirling in Brussels and I'll try and keep you as up to date as possible when we uh, touch bases tomorrow. 
Well, thank you so much, Joe. Uh, yes, we look forward to hearing your reporting later on in the week when the summit is ongoing as well. Well, thank you very much, Francis, Joe and Dom, for your reporting there. Let's welcome now our guest, Guillaume Patek. Guillaume, thank you so much for joining us. Could you just start by telling us a bit about yourself, your background, and what first got you interested in reporting on Ukraine? Absolutely. Well, first and foremost, thank you very much for having me on. So I came to Ukraine for the first time in 2019 to visit a distant relative in Rivne in Western Ukraine. At the time, I was still in journalism school and I started working on, a, on an investigative piece about the reforms of the Ukraine banking system, which took uh, an awful long time because I was doing that as I was still finishing my studies. So I kept coming back to Ukraine. And uh, just as the COVID pandemic was ending, I decided to make the jump and move to Ukraine. So I I traveled and settled permanently in Ukraine. It was in September 2021, so so not too long before the beginning of the Forsky invasion. And ever since then, I've been reporting about the ongoing developments in the country, not only on the front line, obviously, mostly for French newspaper uh, Les Echos, uh, Belgian newspaper La Libre Belgique, um, French television show uh, Quotidien, and some other media outlets. So when I first traveled to Ukraine, beside obviously the professional incentive that I had to move here, I just really fell in love with the country, with the culture, with the people that I found really generous, very welcoming, very warm. And, uh, and yeah, settled in Kiev, which uh, I have been calling my home ever since. Well, thank you very much for that introduction, Guillaume. You've done quite a bit of frontline reporting during the full-scale invasion. Can you just give us a sense of where you've been and what you've seen? Absolutely. So I was actually out of the country when the Forsky invasion began. I had been reporting in Donbass for about a month up until roughly the 10th of February. I went back to France for what I at the time thought would be a much needed and long vacation. But obviously about a week and a half later, the Forsky invasion began. So I, I packed my things again and, and traveled straight to the Polish-Ukraine border and then crossed into the country after a couple of days once I had secured a bulletproof vest and helmet. Initially went to Odessa and then went back to Kiev. I traveled to Irpin as the, the city was still being liberated by Ukraine forces. And after that, I've been working mostly, I uh, would say, in Donbass, even though I did some stints in the Mykolaiv, Mykolaiv region in the south. But I've mostly been working in the Kharkiv Oblast in the, the direction of Kupiansk quite recently. I worked in Bakhmut up until the very last moment when it was still possible, which was in uh, early January of this year. I traveled, I worked a lot in the Seaversk and Sodor general area towards New York as well, so mostly in the Donetsk Oblast, then a bit further south towards Vugledar, where I worked uh, over the course of the summer 2023 with the 68th Brigade there. So I've been mostly working in the east and, and traveling to various positions. I tried to get as broad of a picture as, as, as could be gathered from uh, from the ongoing events at the front line and uh, yeah that's been mostly it even though i am based in kiev i would say I travel travel on a very regular basis to the country's eastern front line because obviously this is where the main developments are happening and uh, and it's very important especially as other world events have distracted maybe the attention of western audiences from what's going on here it's very important to keep ukraine in the limelight if only to ensure that people do not forget uh, keep keep pressuring their uh, their leaders and their political representatives into helping Ukraine because as you were making the case a bit earlier 
This is not just a fight for Ukraine's future. It's very much the future of Europe that is at stake and of the international rule-based order. We, despite all its flaws, obviously is much better than uh, chaos and uh, just rampant revanchism and the idea that any nation can just take parts of another uh, neighboring nations. So that's mostly it there. There's a lot of danger and risk associated with doing frontline reporting. Could you share any moments where you did really feel at risk? What happened and what did you do? I think, so unfortunately, there were a couple of those moments. You you do your best to minimize uh, the risk that you take. You do the best to ensure that the route that you're taking, that the reporting uh, you will be doing, you do it with as much data and as much knowledge as possible. So I'm going to knock on wood right now and, uh, and say that hopefully those moments won't happen again. But there were a few close calls, especially over the summer 2022. I was covering with my Australian colleague Bryce Wilson, at the time the Ukrainians were pulling back out of Lysychansk and Severodonetsk, and we based ourselves in Siversk because it was on the road to Lysychansk, which gave us this kind of vantage point to observe the ongoing developments, the retreat, and, uh, and also the Russian advance in the area. And one day as we were working on the northern edge of Siversk, I'd been told by residents there that they had to bury two of their uh, of the neighbors basically in the garden just in front of a residential building because they couldn't reach to the cemetery because of ongoing Russian shelling. As we were walking back to those hastily, from those hastily dug graves towards the building, we heard a first Russian grad rocket landing maybe about 100 meters away, then the second about 50 meters, and the third one we didn't hear it land. We heard it over our head with this very distinctive sound, which I hope no one will ever have to hear again. But we basically managed to rush inside the entrance of the building. I went straight down in what was basically the basement, but my friend Bryce, who was behind me, went up a flight of stairs. But because of the rumble of the artillery, you had the whole salt were just landing around us. I was for a few kind of dreadful seconds, unsure if he was still alive or dead, especially he had uh, basically grabbed a Ukrainian, an older Ukrainian woman who was talking with us. He had grabbed her by the arm. So I was uh, unsure if they had escaped and escaped thank god they did so in that precise moment we did probably what people wouldn't recommend which is to say run for shelter usually you're advised when artillery starts landing to just get on the ground to try and avoid the shrapnel we were lucky enough that this time but obviously the more you work on the front line the more you expose yourself i think it's no no surprise to any of you especially since some of of you from the telegraph have been out there have extensive experience working on the front line in ukraine that it's very much a war of artillery, even though now I would say that the threat of artillery might even have been overtaken by FPV drones, but that's certainly something we'll get to a bit later and that Dom was, was mentioning a bit earlier. So you try to assess the threat to the best of your ability. Obviously, when you travel to those areas, there's always the understanding that something can happen and you can be as prepared as can be. You can have done you know, a, a dozen hostile environment trainings. You can be a seasoned reporter, but a misplaced piece of shrapnel is always always a threat, obviously. So I don't care much for grads, nor for uh, nor for more usual artillery. There was a second time at the time of the Kharkiv counteroffensive, uh, the very successful Kharkiv counteroffensive. We travelled then again with two Australian colleagues, Bryce Wilson and Francis Farrell from the Kiev Independent, to a recently liberated village called Pierschotravnieve, which was basically the last Ukraine-held village before Russian positions. The fighting had stalled at the time. There was not much advance, but there was still heavy fighting going on. Aviation was at play. It had basically turned into a two-way artillery range. And as we were pulling into a village, we got out of the car to speak with a visibly frightened lady who told us that they were shelling day in, day out. 
And as she was saying that, we heard in the distance the quite distinctive sound, the crack of an, an outgoing artillery round, and then it came whistling above our head. In that time, we got to the ground. So did the, the lady. Unfortunately, she seemed to already have been very, pretty much used to, to those kind of events. So we escaped the shrapnel, went back into the car and left. There were a couple more moments, but I think that should give you an idea of, unfortunately, the threat that the journalists are exposed to, bearing in mind that as journalists we're going out there uh, of our own volition, which is not the case, obviously, for those civilians, and, uh, and they have to deal and live with this, this indiscriminate shelling on a daily basis. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Guillaume, for sharing um, those experiences with us. Can I ask, over the past nearly two years now, you must have spoken to hundreds of of Ukrainian soldiers, as you said, to try and get a sense of what's happening on the front, to understand their lives, to understand the challenges they they face. Um, Could you share maybe some memorable encounters and interviews that you've done that really stick out in your mind over over, over the past 18, 19 months? Of course. So the problem with uh, those, those kind of questions, and I think it's a very good one, don't get me wrong, but as you mentioned, there were so many of those encounters and all of them memorable, memorable in the sense that I personally did not expect to see a war of that scale on the European continent in the 21st century. So every soldier that you encounter, every person, every civilian, every aid worker always has stories to tell that are heart-wrenching, that are basically example of bravery, of courage, of suffering, of utmost despair at times. But to just share a few, I was working in the last, in the early days of January in Bakhmut itself. The Russians, especially the Wagner prison conscripts, were already storming positions on the northern edge of the town uh, and were getting increasingly closer to the center where you could hear um, basically small arms fire from the city center, which is usually not a very good sign. Um, and when we went there, by complete happenstance, we ended up working with the Scala Battalion. Uh, so it was mostly a reconnaissance and assault group of the Ukraine army, which had its more or less separate and original structure. We, we encountered some of them in, in the city center and they invited us into their base, which was a basement in the center of the city. And uh, as we were going down into the basement, a group of the soldiers came back from a, an assault operation, still amped up on, on adrenaline. They were very keen to talk, and uh, we had a very good contact with them. And one of the soldiers, whose call sign was Bakhmut, for pretty obvious reason, he was fighting in what was then the charred ruins of his hometown, and was recollecting, telling me that you know, he would he would go on on walks in that area, which had been just turned to rubbles. He would reminisce quite fondly about what Bakhmut used to be prior to the Forsk invasion. Um, he was a very dedicated Ukrainian soldier. I think it bears repeating as well that he was one of those Russian speakers from Donbass, the, the Russian propaganda tried to portray us in dire need of liberation, as he would say himself, liberate us from what exactly? Our livelihood, our family members, our limbs. And unfortunately, we got the news, I think, about three or four months back that Bakhmut had been killed on one of the operations. So that was certainly something that, that stuck with me. Um, more recently, we went out to work with the 47th Separate Motorized Brigade in the direction of Kupiansk. And I think that's Unfortunately, quite a, a symbol of the manpower uh, shortages or problems that the Ukraine army might be encountering. We worked on a artil- with an artillery unit. We were manning um, two S1 self-propelled howitzers. And as we were getting back from the position, we were given a ride by, by a jeep of the unit. And the driver, uh, whose call sign, unfortunately, I, I forgot, was very nice. And as, I was, when, you know, as we were parting with him, I told him to stay safe. He told me, I don't have a choice. I have three grandchildren who are counting on me. So it was certainly distressful to think that this man should have, you know, enjoyed a well, well-deserved, well-earned retirement and instead was fighting in a frozen position somewhere 
in northeastern Ukraine. So those are but a few, obviously, of all the conversations I've had. And all of them just always impressed me with the resilience, with the courage and the bravery of the Ukrainians. Even though I think it bears repeating, they should never have been put in that position. And the least we can do as democratic nations is given the tools to end this fight as soon as possible and ensure that Ukraine can be a prosperous, sovereign nation that can choose its future for itself. A question from me, Guillaume, before I hand over to Dom Francis and Joe, who I know have got questions. Thank you so much for everything you've said so far. You mentioned there Ukraine's manpower problem. Can I ask, what's your sense of the broader issues and challenges facing the Ukrainian armed forces at the moment, you know, in the middle of winter 2023? Absolutely. Uh, so it was unfortunately probably one of the main cause of concern for many of the soldiers and officers that we spoke to during our last trip. Uh, with my two colleagues, American colleagues, photojournalists Madeleine Kelly and Justin Yao. We came back from Donbass a little, little less than a week ago, and the manpower issue was a pretty big problem. I spoke to units who is by now, like most of the numbers, are made up of mobilized soldiers. Many of them are older. I spoke with a foreign instructor with extensive combat experience who was telling me that he's seeing more and more soldiers between the age of 45 and 55 um, to replenish the ranks of the kind of depleted brigades fighting in eastern Ukraine. Many of them come from a rather hard labor background. Many of them have been working in factories, in mines for years, so they have back problems, knee problems. Some of them don't exactly have fighting experience. The motivation itself is not much of a cause for concern because those people, better than anyone, unfortunately, know precisely what they're fighting for. Some of them have actually joined of their own volition so that their children and grandchildren do not have to fight. But it is certainly a growing trend. It's a problem. Most of the contract soldiers, the most experienced part of the Ukraine fighting force, have been either killed, have been injured, are exhausted after almost now two years of fighting. So it is a growing problem. And as I don't have to tell you, and I think many of the, the listeners can imagine for themselves, Winters in, in Ukraine, Central and Eastern Europe, are uh, quite harsh, uh, quite dreary. So when you're fighting out of a frozen position, actually frozen, most of the soldiers would tell you that frozen is better than the mud, that kind of pervasive, sticky black mud that, that kind of threatens to swallow your boots at any moment. The soldiers in the trenches are faced with infestations of rodents because most of the positions are dug in fields that haven't been tilled since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. So at times we were in positions where the soldiers were telling us that they're basically sharing the position with hundreds of mice and rodents. Um, just absolute horror, besides obviously the very real and very constant threats of Russian artillery, the soldiers there are facing conditions. Obviously, the weaponry has changed from the First World War, don't get me wrong, but it is reminiscent. I, as a Frenchman, especially in school, you would learn a lot about the battles of Verdun, of La Somme, Le Chemin des Dames, Pachandel. And when you read the accounts of the first hand accounts of soldiers there, it's maddening to think that people are facing the very same conditions now in 2023 and almost 2024, still on the European continent. Thank you, Guillaume, for sharing your thoughts there. Dom Nichols, I know you've got a question. Shall we come to you first? Dom. Thanks, David. Hi, Guillaume. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, I've got a question. Your visits to the front, I'm interested in the in the equipment you've been seeing there deployed and the how that's changed over the over the, well, the years of this since the full-scale invasion. In particular, I wonder if you could comment on the quality of the equipment, the personal equipment on the soldiers rather than sort of vehicles and, and such, but the personal equipment for the soldiers, what the quality is like, the provenance of it, how much of that is supplied by the government and how much of it is coming by volunteer organisations. And on that latter point, what you see at the moment as the priorities for people to, if they wish to, 
donate and, and help fund these organisations? And, and which um, which organisations would you recommend? That's an excellent question, Tom. Thank you for asking it. So not dwelling too much on, on the vehicles and the, the heavy weaponry, as you said, because we will probably have time to, to mention it further away. Um, but when it comes to personal equipment, uh, one of the big things that I've seen most of the soldiers that I've encountered, uh, so could just be selection bias, right? Most of the soldiers that I've encountered didn't have much complaint about their own personal equipment. However, most of it, or at least a significant part for some of the soldiers, was entirely self-funded. Many of them have bought their own plate carriers who are a bit more practical and comfortable than the ones that are issued by the Ukraine Armed Forces. Some of them invested in some optics, Picatinny reels, some better hand grips for their assault rifle, for their um, for the AK-74, which is issued obviously by the Ukraine army. And generally, quality of life is stuff is mostly bought by the soldiers with their own funds or funds raised by the friends. Here again, might be selection bias because of the media that I consume, but almost every ad that I get on Instagram these days is different Ukraine units trying to, to raise funds for winter clothing, uh, winter gear, better helmets, straps for the helmets, straps for the guns. So the very essentials that a soldier might need are provided by the Ukraine Armed Forces and from the conversations that I've had, insufficient number. However, anything that pertains to quality of life is generally pro- pro- provided by the soldiers themselves. And that's where you can see a class divide as well in the trenches, because you have soldiers who come from a wealthier background, you might have younger soldiers who have, for example, who used to have jobs, like well-paying jobs in IT in Kyiv. So they're able to have gear that is a bit more, I wouldn't say fancy, because fanciness is certainly not the point here, but might be a bit more comfortable, might be a bit better quality. Some of them do get to import gear, such as plate carriers, for example, from the US or other European nations. So it's certainly an issue in the sense that not every Ukraine soldier is equal in that regard. As for volunteer organizations, they're still doing a lot of heavy lifting. I have two very good friends of mine who are from Slavyansk. They have been working as volunteers and supplying the Ukraine Armed Forces. At the time, it was mostly they were helping out volunteer battalions in 2014, volunteer units that were made up of some of their friends, acquaintances, friends of friends, family members. And they're still doing it. They're still carrying out the very same work. And I was speaking to one of them, Serhi, was telling me that he's frankly exhausted. I was due to meet with the other one the day I met with Serhi, which was maybe a week and a half ago now. And uh, Yura couldn't turn up because he had to deliver stoves to Avdivka, to the soldiers there. So when we think of equipment supplied to the Ukraine army, there's obviously the sense that, you know, we need to send um, drones, for example, and don't get me wrong, they're very important, um, night vision goggles, uh, this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, uh, just a stove, for example, is a very like is a very important material equipment because it ensures that the soldiers in the trench, while they're not out fighting, can at least have a little bit of comfort. And that's a very relative comfort. As for the, the volunteer organizations that, that you can donate to, I am yet to hear a single complaint about, most notably, the Come Back Alive Foundation, which has been doing amazing work. I don't think I have enough legitimacy to speak on the matter and really recommend people where they should put their money. I know that people on on, on X, formerly known as Twitter, have compiled lists of some of the best organizations, the organizations with the best reputations. However, after all that spiel that I just made, I would say that one of the most pressing concerns is still drones. Drones, drones, drones. So if you intend to keep supporting Ukraine financially, I would say that the drone programs, notably the ones initiated or supported by the Comeback Alive Foundations, are certainly should be a priority, in my opinion. Lovely. Thanks, Graham. And uh, your point there about soldiers buying their own 
kit to make life a little bit more comfortable. That's, I think that's in every military there's ever been. We certainly had it in the British Army, having your own kit and making it a little bit sort of uh, best spoke was known as being Ali, having all the sort of cool stuff. And I remember the CEO of Two Para when we were in Afghanistan saying, Aliness saves lives. Think of that, make of that what you will. My final question, Guillaume. You mentioned earlier on about Russian propaganda. I was going to ask you about disinformation. So we get bombarded over here. We certainly do as journalists. We get a load of old trolls and all the rest of it, bots and blah, 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 blah. blah. What, how do you see the Russian disinformation campaign working in Ukraine? So, you know, a different history and society from, from here. So there might be subtly different methods. It's certainly very agricultural and clunky over here. I wonder if there's any any more nuance to it or sophistication, shall I say, to the disinformation campaign you see in Ukraine. What are you, what are you seeing over there? That's a good question. Obviously, the most sophisticated and efficient propaganda campaign. You won't know that it's propaganda and you won't even hear about it because, well, it's working the way that it is intended. To a certain extent, and don't get me wrong, like Ukraine society does not live in a vacuum uh, when it comes to the media consumption or or otherwise. But the full-scale invasion as at least among some, for example, of civilians that I met in Donbass who are not pro-Russian by any metrics, but who were maybe a bit more suggestible in that regard. Many of them have been, well, basically, I would say vaccinated against those Russian psychological operations because you're way less receptive to Russian disinformation when Russian rockets are raining down on your city and killing your relatives and friends. So I think that there's the probably the main objective of Russian propaganda at the moment in Ukraine is maybe amplifying some of the dissensions and political quarrels and infighting that have always existed in Ukraine, like as in other countries in the world. I think there was this kind of union sacre at the beginning of, of the war between all the different political forces of Ukraine, where there was this common understanding that faced with the, the, the very real and uh, existential threat of the Russian invasion, we should probably relegate our political quarrels and political fighting to after the war. It's slowly creeping back up into the discourse out here. And I think that the, the Russians will only ever be too happy to amplify this and probably widen the cracks that Ukraine and Kyiv might have with some of its Western backers and Western support. But as I said, Ukraine society as a rule, and especially since 2014, has had this uh, kind of much more critical and I think like no one will tell you and teach you better about Ukraine disinformation about Russian disinformation and propaganda and psychological operations than the Ukrainians they're very keenly aware of how how it works and though there was a fertile ground in some areas of the country for various historical and economic reasons as well many of the people that that I met for example, prior to the full-scale invasion in Donbass, who, as I said, not outwardly pro-Russian, but more this, there's still this kind of understanding that Russian and Ukrainians are brotherly nations, that they should get along instead of fighting. Many of the ones that I do keep in touch with these days are nowadays donating to the Ukrainian armed forces, supporting them. They have family members. They might be serving themselves in the Ukrainian army these days. So I think that Russia has, has basically lost all hope. And I think it's one of the reasons that they resorted to this full-scale invasion. Obviously, not the only one, but they, they, they realized that the Ukrainians are not receptive to their, um, to their propaganda anymore, certainly not in the, same, um, in the same scope, and that the Ukrainians want to steer the future of their nation uh, themselves, as, as any other nation in the world. And, uh, and I think that Russia saw that as an existential threat to its corrupt, decrepit kleptocracy, the idea that there might be an imperfect, granted imperfect democracy on its border, but a democracy nonetheless that has presidential elections that are free and fair, 
when Russia is not trying to meddle and interfere in them. So, so I think the Ukrainians are very keenly aware of the way that Russian propaganda works, and that's probably that has probably inoculated them against it for a while. Thanks so much for your time today, Guillaume. Uh, I've got one question, but with two components in a sense. First your sense of morale at the moment amongst Ukrainian forces? And second, just your sense of misconceptions that we may have, listeners and Western commentators may have on this war based on where we're at compared to what you actually see on the ground. Are there certain things that soldiers say to you that differs from the conventional narratives that are often being talked about in relation to the war? That's, that is an interesting question. I would say that first, when it pertains to the morale, the last time I was in Donbass prior to this, to the latest trip, was in June, last June. Then I injured my ankle and was out of work for a little while. And at the time, it was the very beginning of the counteroffensive. The hopes were pretty high at the time that Ukraine could deal this kind of swift, decisive blow to the Russian invading forces and hopefully, well, maybe not liberate Crimea in a matter of weeks, but at least at least capture Tokmak or rather liberate Tokmak or potentially push all the way to Melitopol potentially divide the Russian invading forces in two, severe their logistics and the supply lines. Obviously, this sense of optimism has probably has like progressively faded. And to be perfectly candid, this trip to Donbass was, was a harsher one, not so much in the sense of the intensity of the fighting that I encountered there, because it was pretty intense already in, um, in June. But the morale certainly has, has taken, like the failure of the counteroffensive has taken a big toll on the morale of the Ukraine defenders, which it doesn't mean like there's this sense of resignation, but not in the sense that they feel like they're going to lose, more in the sense that, well, we're going to have to keep on fighting because we don't have a choice. But it could have been handled better. It could have been done better had we had more of more support. Uh, if, it, if the support that was pledged to us had reached the front lines like faster, we would have incurred less losses. We would have lost less people and good people, bright people, just people that, you know, that would have contributed and make a huge contribution to, to, to the Ukrainian future are now dead or heavily injured. So the morale has certainly, certainly been like, really impacted as mentioned earlier ukraine society and that extends to the soldiers in the front line they don't live in a, they don't live in a vacuum they're keenly aware of the political developments abroad there was especially discussions with some of my friends fighting on the front line about what the outbreak of war in gaza meant for ukraine many of them were worried that he would and i think to a certain sense that kind of came to pass that it would distract the attention of the international community away from ukraine and hence there would be less support so so at the moment there is this kind of quiet resignation the soldiers are telling me about about massive losses that they have incurred and they feel that time has been lost which as i said doesn't mean that they think that they're going to lose it many of them still tell me that they're going to win one way or another but they feel like it could have been done with way less casualties and that some of the ukraine edge that they had namely for example in drone warfare that the ukraine army was a, a major proponent of at the very beginning of the war and had both a kind of quantitative and qualitative advantage in the use of drones russian production has basically outpaced ukraine's in that regard and that's certainly a, a common complaint about uh, that made uh, among ukraine soldiers as for the second part of your question would you mind repeating it Yes, just very briefly, just about any misconceptions there may be amongst commentators around compared to what you've seen on the ground. Absolutely. So common misconceptions. I think that generally this there is a lot of doom and gloom uh, at the moment in the media for 
I would say valid reasons, but the Ukraine will to fight is still very much is still very much intact. They understand that this is an existential threat. They do, however, stress many of the Ukraine soldiers that I encounter. Uh, besides knowing that they're fighting for their own country and their future and the future of the children. And that's a case that they're making and I think needs to be made as well. And as you were mentioning, it is being made uh, by more and more people, people who are much more eloquent than I am. This is not just a fight for Ukraine. And the Ukraine soldiers tell me themselves a number of times where I've been told, if the war, if Russia is not stopped at our border now, the war will go to the Baltic states, it will go to Moldova, it will go to Poland, they're, they're threatening Finland, they're threatening Estonia, they're, they're even laying claims to Alaska again. So I think that the Ukraine soldiers are making a much more potent and cogent case for the, 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 the wide scope and the existential nature of this war that many commentators in the West have been able to do so. And they're making it even though as they're withstanding Russian shelling on a daily basis. So if those men and women fighting on the front line can make such a good case, I think the least we can do as they're freezing in those muddy trenches is probably listen to them and and echo their message. Hi, uh, yeah, good to hear from you. Just to, to take away from the war, not to detract from it entirely, but you spoke about at the beginning of your introduction how you'd fallen in love with Ukraine. So I was wondering if you could talk us through some of your favourite spots, cities. What do you always do, even though you live there, when you're out walking in Kiev? Do you have a yeah, favourite coffee shop or a restaurant that you go to? Because it'd be... Uh, be good to hear some sort of recommendations for our readers and listeners when when the country opens back up properly after after a victory and they many people have enjoyed learning about Ukrainian culture and history and what yeah what what were your sort of tips for the country so it would be it would be quite hard to pick uh, my favorite places because God knows there are many many of them. I think that Kiev obviously is 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 an absolutely gorgeous city. Uh, Kiev at the very beginning of fall, when you know all the leaves turn orange, red, and yellow, and you go for long walks through the city's many many parks. It's just an absolutely gorgeous city. It has a very vibrant cultural and artistic scene. But and I know that some of my Ukrainian friends are kind of question that that stands but i actually really like donbass i really like the donetsk the donetsk oblast the luhansk oblast the places where i've been there i have found the people there to be very i'd say that ukrainians as a whole are very genuine and and they're also very frank in a matter that is at times very refreshing in the sense that they wear their heart on their sleeves and that is in my opinion a very good thing but i would say uh, that the the people from donbass are Exactly that. Very genuine, very welcoming, very warm. And uh, and despite everything that they've endured and that they're still enduring, they, they still have this humanity about them. Donbass, arguably some of the cities in Donbass may not be the prettiest. That's a fair point. It was an industrial hotland first and foremost. It was mining area. So it's it's like you like they call the, the mountains of Donbass. It's basically the slag heaps of the of the mines. But it has a distinct charm to it. In, in the summer, it's very lush, very green, very beautiful, and and the people there are amazing. But I, as I said, it would be very hard to pick uh, a single favorite place because all of the places I've been to, Odessa is a beautiful city with its very own independent spirit. That if any of your listeners or yourself have been to Marseille, for example, it's a city that I would liken to it as in like we are certainly not like the capital we're not like paris well we're not like kiev we have our very own independent spirit with its very own particular architectural style uh, chernihiv is a beautiful city as well the last time i was there was after the like not long after the siege had been has, had been lifted and the city especially it's uh, northern outskirts that suffered heavily but the city itself is very beautiful lviv obviously is, is absolutely gorgeous ivano frankivsk that's the beauty of Ukraine, really, and that's one of its strengths, in my opinion, 
is just the mosaic of influences of architectural styles of gastronomy like for, for the, the, there's basically as many borscht recipes as there are ukrainian babushi and i think that's a very beautiful thing about ukraine is that you can come back and come back and come back and you'll always find something new something interesting something beautiful and 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 it's a country that is very very dear to my heart and i hope to see it at peace prosperous because ukraine is very hardworking. they are willing to put in the effort provided that they get a little respite from the neighbor well guillaume thank you so much for your time today it's been really fascinating and really great to, to hear from you thank you for putting up with all of our questions um let's now go to our final thoughts uh guillaume we'll come to you last as our guest but dom nichols do you want to go first yeah, thanks. Just to note that today there's been a, a problem with a, one of the main mobile phone networks, the cell tower networks in Ukraine. So Kyivstar, Ukraine's top mobile operator, about 24 million users had a problem this morning. Don't know if it's a hack or if it's just a, uh, a technical fault, which does happen. But there's been large uh, problems for home internet, uh, mobile users, all the rest of it, ATM machines and some bank terminals have been affected. Most most worryingly, there are reports in Sumi, the air raid warning system is non-operational. Now, in a statement, Keevstar said its mobile data signal was temporarily disabled. We don't know if it was an attack or, um, or like I say, a te- technical fault. It said it would compensate customers for loss of access to services and said the most important thing is that the personal data of users has not been compromised. So it sounds pretty bad, but I just because it is breaking, we're not entirely sure what's happened and how, how bad it is. There's a lot of doom-mongering out there, but I just pointed to Alexander Povroznik, who we've spoken to on the pod before, former film critic, doing a lot of foodie, foodie stuff at the moment. She said the only way, she uses a different mobile operator, but the only way she knew that there was a, a problem with Keevstar was because she says her kid's paediatrician had remarked that he didn't have a service, but it was only a, only sort of a near side in small talk. So she's suggesting it wasn't as big a deal as others are making out. But there seems to be a very large uh, failure of some description today across the, the main mobile phone network in, in Ukraine. Thank you very much, Dom. Joe Barnes. Yeah, so for my final thought, I want to look at a few sort of Western official briefings that we've all been receiving recently. So I was in another one of them today, and there was lots of talk about Crimea and how Ukraine has had great success in making Crimea basically untenable as a Russian air force and naval base for its deep strikes using drones, whether they be aerial drones, missiles, using these seaborne drones and one of the western officials basically said that look you only have to look at what ukraine has done with a bomb strapped to the back essentially of a motor a jet ski to look at their successes but then and so one one of the officials said look critically crimea is no longer a point of strength for russia and so it's been pretty well vocalized by whether it be sort of officials at NATO, the eu other sort of western government officials that they don't expect to see any decisive breakthrough in 2024 and that's from either russia or ukraine they don't see either side having enough to make a strategical difference to the front line yes there will be little points where maybe a town will be liberated a town will be captured but they don't see any sort of sweeping offense from the ukrainians as we saw in kharkiv and Kherson. At sort of the back end of 2022. Um, but apparently Zelensky has sort of behind the scenes been telling his Western allies that he does have a plan, but it's apparently yet to share it with Ukraine's Western allies. So oof, don't know how true that is because we're, we're never going to know the full details. So I'm not privy to sort of Kiev's internal planning. But what I'm picking up on is rather than a wholesale 
offensive that aims to like like the free axis we saw free axes we saw in the summer counteroffensive. Probably not going to see something like that again, is what Western officials are sort of hinting at. And they're pointing more towards a, ca- a Ukrainian campaign which will further attempt to basically take away Russia's control over certain strategic points of interest. And they, they're really pointing at Crimea. So how Ukraine go about it? Are they going to finally get given something that is going to help them take apart and just basically dismantle the Kerch Bridge? a key sort of logistics hub for getting gear into Crimea and then onto the southern front lines of Zaporizhia and Donetsk. Are they going to do that? Or are they purely going to get closer and closer, slightly edge closer into artillery range to make Crimea unholdable? And then at that point, in the West's eyes, it seems that the attitude in the Kremlin and Putin is as long as he has a grip of Crimea he isn't going to budge. He's not going to go to negotiations. But as soon as you start showing the world, showing him, because maybe he doesn't know, that Crimea is really not under full Russian control anymore, you might actually start convincing him, convincing Russians, that Russia is actually losing this war. Then you can actually point to, look, they've lost 330,000 men. They've lost countless amounts of vehicles, planes, tanks, whatever. Like, Had a huge hit to their economy via sanctions but until you basically the ukrainians can do that find a pinch point strong enough to basically convince putin that he's actually lost and should either withdraw from ukraine and basically then go to the negotiating table and hammer it out without any more lives being lost and that is yeah that is the moment but i think what is important to say is look vladimir we the west can talk about negotiations as much as they want but that's something Vladimir Putin doesn't want. He sort of maintains these maximalist goals, as Western officials call them. He um, speaks of this idea of he still thinks he can take over the entirety of Ukraine, topple the Zelensky government, topple any government that might come after that, and install his own sort of Russian proxy in Ukraine and sort of start building the Soviet Union. But yeah, but it's just an insight of what Ukraine could potentially do next year, um, according to some voices in, in the West. Well, thank you very much, Um Dom and Joe. Francis, very quickly, then to Guillaume. Francis Dernley. Thanks, David. We were fortunate enough to have Evgenia Karamuza in the podcast last week, uh, day 649, if you haven't had a chance to listen to what was a really fascinating interview. And in that, we spoke at length about the state of the Russian opposition, including a man not without controversy in Ukraine, Alexei Navalny. Now, there has been much discussion about him in recent days, and I think it's worth us making a reference to it. According to his allies, he has been removed from the IK-6 penal colony in the Vladimir region, east of Moscow. And his whereabouts are not known. His aides have been preparing for his possible transfer to a harsher colony after he was sentenced in August to an additional 19 years in prison, something we reported on at the time. But his lawyers have not been able to contact him since last Tuesday. Now, we know the process of transferring prisoners by rail across Russia's territory can take weeks, with relatives and family unable to obtain information about their whereabouts and well-being until they reach their destinations. This may not be too unusual, but nonetheless... Whether he's being moved or not, the increased restrictions placed on the Valley and others is evidence of the clampdown on dissenting voices we've discussed at length on the podcast in recent weeks, almost certainly laying the groundwork for the presidential election in a few months' time. Though, of course, the outcome of that will not be in doubt, unfortunately. Thank you, Dom, Francis, Joe. Guillaume, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? 
Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. First and foremost, I want to thank you again for the opportunity to speak with you and to the listeners today. I appreciate everyone that took the time to, to come to the space. And I think that the point that Joe was making is bears repeating. There can be no negotiations with somebody that does not want to negotiate. Putin and the Russian regime at the moment are not interested in negotiating. They think that they can outlast Western support for Ukraine. And unfortunately, we have been giving them ammunition by dittering, by, with the political infighting, with, with the war fatigue. I hate to use that term because the war fatigue, the ones who are the most legitimate uh, to feel that war fatigue are Ukraine civilians and Ukraine soldiers in the trenches. The onus is on us to make sure that Russia doesn't win this war, that we deal Russian imperialism a decisive blow because they have proven time and time again that given any leeway, they will just rebuild their forces, reconstitute their strength and attack again. I don't know if that's an actual quote or not, but you know, there's this supposedly attributed to Winston Churchill and appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. Uh, we cannot afford to make the same mistakes over and over again. At the moment, even the people who, in my opinion, not all of them are, you know, useful idiots. Some people are trying to make the argument in good faith that, okay, we need to sit at the negotiating table. With whom? The Russians are not interested in negotiating. The, the objectives remain exactly the same. They're daily threatening on Russian television to drive their tanks all the way to Berlin, to attack Finland, to take over the Baltic states, to reintegrate potentially countries from Central Asia into a, 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 a Soviet Union 2.0 devoid of that specific Soviet communist ideo ideological component. But Russian imperialism is unfortunately alive and well, and this is now the opportunity to deal them a decisive blow. And it's a shame that it's taken so much Ukrainian blood, and it's, the onus is on us, Western countries, to make sure that they're stopped now and it doesn't happen again. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 
When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.